I think the main thing that young women should be grateful for is that they have more and better opportunities than did women my age when we were growing up. For example, where I went to medical school, there had never been a female cardiac surgical resident. And while I was there was when they had their first female surgical resident. So I think we should be grateful for the opportunities that women of my generation fought so hard for, but we also have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant because of the political situation in this country now. And I like to think that it's just the last gasp of a, a patriarchal system that has oppressed women and men, but mainly women, for millennia. Welcome to the Gratitude Podcast on www.georgeandbenta.com, where you'll hear a new story each week that will inspire more gratitude in your own life. Our mission is to inspire 100,000 people to discover how to feel gratitude and live a happy life through the amazing life stories of our successful guests and their actionable tips. And now, the host of our podcast, George and Benta. Hi, Gratitude Seeker. Welcome to this special episode of the Gratitude Podcast. We have here today Dr. Barbara, Barbara Roberts. She's the first female adult cardiologist in Rhode Island. And her life story is a story, a life full of passion for women's rights in motherhood, in medicine, in love, and in being the underdog. She stood up for what she believed in and battled politics, career stereotypes, her children's fathers, the family court system, public scrutiny, and even her own conscience at times. And she made it through all of this, proving to be a hero of her own unique journey. And I think that's, that's quite amazing. And now she has written a memoir about her journey called The Dr. Broad, A Mafia Love Story. And we have her here today with us on the date of um, the release of the book, and I'm really happy to, to have her here today with us. So welcome, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about both gratitude and the role it has played in my life and to talk about my book. My pleasure, my pleasure. So firstly, congratulations on, on being such a courageous person, such a courageous woman. And um, I'm, I'm really happy to, to have you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm really curious on um, what's your take on gratitude? What, what, how you define gratitude? Well, one of my favorite sayings about gratitude was actually written a few thousand years ago by someone whom I've always been fascinated by, and that is Marcus Tullius Cicero, who was a politician in Rome in the last days of the Roman Republic. He was um, from outside of Rome, but rose through the ranks of uh, Roman uh, public offices to become the best known orator and the best known lawyer of his day. And he said, 
gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all the others. And I think that encapsulates a lot of wisdom. Because if you look at people who are successful, by and large, they are grateful. In my own life, I think the thing I'm most grateful for is that I come from a very large extended family. Mm-hmm. I was raised as the oldest of 10 children in a devout Catholic family. And my mother and her twin sister were the youngest in a large family. So I have dozens, literally dozens of cousins. Um, My mother's twin sister raised eight children. My mother raised 10 children. My father's sister raised five children. And all, just about all of them have children and grandchildren. (laughs) So family reunions, needless to say, are mob scenes. But coming from (laughs) coming from such a large extended family and since I was the oldest having to care for my younger siblings from a young age I think gave me a lot of strengths that perhaps only children or people from small families don't have Mm -hmm. and then I went on to have three children of my own and now I have a grandson and I'm extraordinarily grateful for little Johnny little Johnny Roberts my grandson and I'm grateful to my children and their partners. So I feel like I have a lot to be grateful for. I also had a successful career in medicine when it was very unusual for women to be doctors. Don't forget, when I applied to medical school in the 1960s, there was a quota and no medical school class had more than 10% women. So I overcame that obstacle. I was the second woman ever accepted into my internship program. I was the first woman ever accepted into my cardiology fellowship. And in many ways, I had to be a trailblazer, particularly after I became a conscious feminist when I was a resident at Yale New Haven Hospital and got involved in the pro-choice movement even before Roe versus Wade. And then through that, I became active in the anti-Vietnam War Uh, movement and spoke at many mass demonstrations uh, calling for the withdrawal of all our troops from Southeast Asia. So I've had a very eventful life and I hope that I have told it honestly and fully in my memoir, The Doctor Broad, A Mafia Love Story. Wonderful, wonderful. I can only imagine um, what you went through and all of the experiences that you had have had in your life but one thing that i'm really curious about is how is it to be the first one like a trailblazer and to to have to face all of these challenges like how how were you able to to do that well i was frightened obviously and anxious and nervous but i decided that i was not going to let fear rule my life that i was going to pursue my dreams no matter what. And that's basically what I did. I just said, I'm going to be a survivor. I am going to work as hard as I can. I set goals and I worked as hard as I needed to, to achieve those goals. I was blessed with good health. I was blessed with a support system in my family and friends. So I didn't do this alone. 
but I decided from a very early age that nothing was going to stop me. Wow. That's amazing. And I think it's a, an amazing message for, for our listeners to not be stopped by our fears and instead to to do something about them. And, and another beautiful thing that you mentioned is that whenever I, at least, when, whenever I see people on stage talking to tens of thousands of people, you only see that person. But uh, behind that person, you have, like you said, a support group, family, people that uh, are behind that person, that uh, that give that person courage to, to speak out and to to know that whatever happens they are still loved and um, still appreciated for for who they are and i think that's a very interesting and important thing to mention exactly and i try not to forget the debt of gratitude that i owe to all the people who helped me along the way that's amazing hmm, i love this and i know that um your book is uh, aimed at younger women to, to help them learn some of the lessons of how to survive adversity, to overcome heartbreak, and how to come out in the end and uh, really lead a full and happy life. Can you tell us a little bit more about this topic? Sure. You know, I think that particularly younger women today, have no idea what the world was like for women in the 1950s and the 1960s, and even in the 1970s before the Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade legalized abortion. And when I was a medical student and intern and residence, uh, resident, I saw women coming into emergency rooms with perforated uteruses, even partially disemboweled mm -hmm. because they were desperate enough to seek out back alley illegal abortions. I know of a woman who died because she was denied a life-saving therapeutic abortion. And these experiences radicalized me and actually led to my break with the Catholic Church. I initially broke with the Catholic Church over the issue of birth control because I knew that I would not be able to get through medical school and postgraduate training without using birth control, which was anathema to the Catholic Church and still is. So I had left the church over the issue of birth control, and the final break occurred over the issue of abortion, and I became a very outspoken pro-choice activist, and am to this day. I mean, the last time I spoke at a pro-choice uh, teach-in was just this past uh, October. But women have no idea what the world was like, and yet we see at this current time in our political climate, very powerful right-wing forces mobilizing to deny women the right to control their own bodies. And the right to control your own body is absolutely foundational to freedom and personal autonomy. Every woman should have the right to decide when and whether she is going to have a child. And I wanted to show women what we had to do back in the 60s and 70s to win the right to abortion, because I think the right to abortion is under attack now uh, more viciously than it has been since Roe versus Wade. 
I also wanted women to know that, you know, you can go through divorce, you can go through acrimonious custody battles, you can, you know, survive these things with your sanity and your happiness intact. And that's even before we get into all the acrimony I was subjected to when I became the cardiologist to the head of the New England Mafia. And that's a whole story in itself, how I became his doctor. But basically, my testimony that he was too sick to stand trial, that he had such unstable cardiovascular disease that the stress of the trial, never mind jail, would almost certainly kill him, that allowed him to live out the last three and a half years of his life, if not, um, you know, totally free, at least in the comfort of his own home. But that was another trial by fire because the state police and the Providence police and the federal prosecutors, the FBI, had been trying for many years to put my patient, Mr. Petriarca, behind bars again. And he had actually hidden from the world the true extent of his illness. And when I was first called to check on him, in the Situate State Police Barracks on December 4th, 1980. He, I had already agreed to be his physician, but I had never seen him before because his office appointment had to be rescheduled um, uh, because of the fact that he had a gangrenous toe that required amputation. When I first saw him, I was appalled at how sick he was. In fact, about the second thought I had was, oh my God, he looks like he's about to have a cardiac arrest and I'll never be able to resuscitate him here. And it was with only with great difficulty that I was able to persuade the superintendent of Rhode Island State Police to allow me to take him to the hospital where I practiced, which is called the Miriam Hospital. And it wound up being a six week hospitalization. And that began an almost uh, four year saga where I, I testified under oath in multiple courts about his condition. And the state and the federal prosecutors hired multiple other cardiologists to try and refute my testimony about how sick he was, and not one of them did. Every one of them supported my findings, supported my diagnosis, and supported my recommendation that he not be brought to trial. Amazing. Like, it's, it's one of those things that you you see in movies but it's like hard to believe that it's it's real life it was real life <laughs> <laughs> wow you've really been through through quite a lot and uh, well what i love about you and about how you tell the story is that it's empowering and uh you you were you were able to to fight those things and to to stay professional and to stay uh, focused on what you felt was was the right thing, right? Correct. As I as I mentioned in the book, when you graduate from medical school, you take the Hippocratic Oath, and there are two main parts of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm, and second, I will always put my patient's interests ahead of my own. It doesn't say. I'll put my patient, as long as he's not a criminal, his interests ahead of my own. It doesn't say I'll put his interests ahead of my own unless he's a felon. It says any patient who comes to me, I will put 
his interests ahead of my own. And it was clearly in the interests of my patient, Mr. Patriarca, that he not be put on trial. Just, just the mention of his legal difficulties often precipitated severe attacks of angina. And we, I know for a fact that it was angina, which is the symptom people get when their heart is starved for oxygen, because on multiple occasions, he was hooked up to an electrocardiogram machine during these episodes. And the EKG showed the characteristic changes that one sees in the EKG when the heart isn't getting adequate blood supply. So here was a man who was very disabled. He had been diabetic since the 1940s. He had such severe neuropathy, which is, you know, destruction of the nerves from diabetes. He had such severe neuropathy that he had terrible muscle wasting in his hands. He couldn't, for example, cut his own food. He couldn't button his own shirt. He was completely dependent on his wife to accomplish those tasks for, for him. He couldn't walk across the den in his home without having angina. He was on multiple medications. He had to be followed very closely. And it was a challenge to keep him alive as long as he was alive. In fact, I remember vividly at one point I was testifying in court and the, the prosecutor, whose name was Sue McGurl, kept pressing me, asking the same question, you know, using different words. But basically the question was, if this man is as sick as you say he is, why isn't he dead already? And I looked at her and I said, only God in her wisdom knows when any person is going to die. And the whole court erupted into laughter, except the judge. He kept a poker face. <laughs> um, so, yes, it was, um, it was quite a saga. I, I, I mention also in the book that much against my wishes, the Providence Journal newspaper uh, published a big article on me in the Sunday Magazine section, and the title was, Who is the Real Dr. Roberts? And that day, it came out on a Sunday, and I was making hospital rounds, and as I approached the nurse's station on the fourth floor, I overheard two of the nurses talking, and one said to the other, have you read the article about Dr. Roberts in the paper today? And her friend said, nah, I'm going to wait for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at that moment that I began to think, hmm, maybe my story is pretty interesting. Maybe I'll write about it someday. Hmm. And that was sort of the genesis of my writing this memoir, which I had worked on off and on for close to 20 years. Wow. Now, how I arrived at the title is another amusing story. Shortly after I moved to Rhode Island, I was dating a, a, a young man who was Italian-American, and he had some relatives who were alleged organized crime figures. And it was through him that I first heard the names of, for example, the mob lawyer, Jack Cicilline, and Junior Patriarca. I, I mean, I had already heard of Raymond Patriarca because he was always in the news on a national level for many years. But... Um, we remained friends after we were no longer dating. And after I was identified in the newspapers as Raymond's physician, he called me one day and he said, I have to tell you something funny, Barbara. He said, a friend of mine called and said, hey, Vinny, remember that Dr. Broad you used to go out with? She's the old man's doctor now. <laughs> and I, I thought this was hilarious because to me, Broad was a woman with 
large breasts and small uh, frontal lobes of the brain. And I knew I was just the opposite. At least I'm sure that I don't have large breasts. So <laughs> when, when I thought about writing this memoir and thought about what the title would be, I thought, yeah, it's got to be called The Doctor Broad. <laughs> That's so cool. That oh, 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 O'Reilly. Trust the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts to recommend the best products for your car. Like five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil, just $31.95. Plus get a $10 O'Reilly gift card with your purchase. Extend the life of your vehicle and improve performance with a synthetic oil change. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You have this this sense of humor, and you see um, these kinds of experiences lightly, and you're able to to laugh about about this part, even though I'm sure that in in those moments it it wasn't that easy. But I also wanted to to ask you about the differences. Like you you talked a little bit about how life was for for women in those days, like. What could uh, our young listeners that uh, that are now with all of this technology and all of these freedoms and rights, um, what could they, they be grateful for compared to, to young women in um, in those times? Well, I think they can be grateful for the fact that it's much easier for them to enter the professions like the law profession, the medical profession. It's easier for women to become politicians, although we still are woefully underrepresented in both the national uh, legislature and our state legislatures. It's easier for a woman, for example, to be a governor. Rhode Island finally has its first female governor. So... I think the main thing that young women should be grateful for is that they have more and better opportunities than did women my age when we were growing up. For example, where I went to medical school, there had never been a female cardiac surgical resident. And while I was there was when they had their first female surgical resident. About the only surgical subspecialty women could enter were plastics or pediatrics. There were whole specialties and subspecialties in which women were totally absent. Obviously, there was no women sitting on the Supreme Court in those days. And now we have, what, three, hmm. which isn't half, but at least it's a third. So I think we should be grateful for the opportunities that women of my generation fought so hard for, but we also have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant because of the political situation in this country now. And I like to think that it's just the last gasp of a, a patriarchal system that has oppressed women and men, but mainly women, for millennia. Hmm. I, I love this perspective. I love the fact that even though and i love this the way you see things like even though there is something bad you you see it with a positive twist you know like even though it's something that's not as it should be um you still see it from a wider perspective that 
that it's actually positive. I love that. Right. If, if you see something that isn't the way it should be, then get out there and fix it. Don't just sit back and say, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. There's almost always something you can do about it. I mean, right now, I think the whole world is facing an existential threat to our planet and our species in climate change. But everybody has to do what they can to combat climate change. About five or six years ago now, my husband and I invested in solar panels on our roof. And not only did it cut our electric bills drastically, but it has lowered our carbon footprint. So there's, there's always something one can do. It's important to identify the problem and then think about ways that you as an individual or you as a member of whatever community you're part of can do to head off uh, disaster. Yeah, I, I believe that too, because there are people that are fighting out there for, for different things that are really important for the world, but they can't do everything. And it's up to us to, to do the small things that make the, the, the big things work. And um, I totally agree with that. But change, Absolutely. changing a little bit uh, the, uh, the direction, I want to, to ask you if you remember um, like how you discovered gratitude, like um, when was your first experience feeling grateful and like not just uh, experiencing the idea of gratitude, but actually feeling grateful? Well, one of the first times I can remember feeling overwhelming gratitude was when I received notification that I had been accepted into medical school. You know, I was still in college. And when I got that letter telling me that I had been admitted to the medical school class of 1968, I was beside myself with happiness and gratitude. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I think we we all have these kinds of moments and uh and one of the reasons why I love asking this question is because people will uh, be thinking about their own um experience with gratitude like their own moments in which they felt this overwhelming sensation of of gratitude and yeah I love I love asking this question. So, um, getting back to finding out more about you and your experience, who were the people in your life that you that you felt had a really big impact that you're very grateful for and that you would like to mention? Well, in the field of medicine, I would be remiss if I did not mention Dr. Bernard Laun. Dr. Bernard Laun is still alive. He's a cardiologist who's now in his 90s. He is the most brilliant physician, brilliant cardiologist I have ever met in my life. And he was one of my instructors when I was a fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital back in the 1970s. He was not only a brilliant physician, for example, he invented the cardiac defibrillator and he revolutionized Whoa. the treatment of heart attacks. He not only did that, but he was also 
a longtime peace and anti-nuclear activist. Mm -hmm. And at the height of the Cold War in 1981, he and a Russian cardiologist by the name of Yevgeny Chazov founded the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW. And four years later, IPPNW was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and Dr. Laun and Dr. Chazov traveled to Oslo to receive the Nobel Peace Prize on, the, on behalf of IPPNW. But Dr. Laun, again, was a brilliant, and, and he's retired now, but was a brilliant, brilliant physician. And he taught us what I have tried to teach my medical students and interns and residents and fellows. He taught us that the most important thing you can do for your patient is to listen. Wow. You have to listen and hear not only what the patient is saying, but hear the emotion behind those words. Particularly in cardiology, it's very important sometimes to try and get people to make very difficult lifestyle changes. And no patient is going to acquiesce in making difficult lifestyle changes unless they believe that the physician is hearing them and the physician cares about them. And this may not happen at the first visit, although the foundation must be laid at the first visit. This requires an ongoing relationship between patient and physician in which listening continues to be the most important aspect. So certainly, Dr. Lang was a huge influence in my life in that respect. And my parents were a huge influence in my life. And even though they brought me up to be Catholic and I left the Catholic Church behind, my, pa my parents were civil rights activists before almost there was a civil rights movement. They and friends of theirs um, belonged to the Catholic worker movement. They were followers of Dorothy Day, who was a radical Catholic pacifist. And my father, for example, and mother were part of the Catholic Interracial Council. My father and a couple of my sisters went to Washington for the famous demonstration in which Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Wow. So I was raised to be strong in my morals, to not be prejudiced, and to stand up for what was right. I always say I was raised to be a saint and preferably a martyr. And I became a doctor because I couldn't become a priest. My father worshipped priests and doctors. And I knew I didn't have a prayer of ever becoming a Catholic priest, so I became a doctor. <laughs> so those three people were very seminal influences in my life. Amazing. Amazing. I love how, how you describe them. And um, yeah, I could feel the, the gratitude for, for all of their help and all of their positive influence in your life. And I, I think that's, that's, that's quite amazing. And um, I don't know if you have right now, like uh, practice or something that you do to keep grateful I think you, you you have that positive attitude and that that wide perspective that uh, that makes you a grateful person. Am I correct? 
Yes, you do. And, and I try to keep things in perspective. Sometimes if I find something upsetting, I say to myself, Barbara, in the cosmic scale of things, it matters diddly squat. It just, <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Get over it <laughs> and get on with your life. You know, everybody has things in their life that upsets them. It, it's an almost daily occurrence. Uh, but you have to look at the large picture and realize that we are on an infinitesimal speck in a vast universe. And all we can do is be the best that we can be. Exactly. Beautiful. Beautifully said. And I, I also think that it's, it's a great idea uh, to, to think about the, the bigger picture whenever we, we think about our situation or we, we feel bad about different things because when we do that, we see that in fact it's not that big of a deal. And uh, even if we feel it, it is. It's it's much it's much easier to to see the bigger picture and to see that it's part of something bigger. And uh, yeah, it's very right. empowering. Right. It's easier on your nervous system. If you let every little thing bother you, you're not going to be a happy or grateful person. But if you try to put things in perspective, in the larger perspective, you'll be uh, much less stressed and much happier <laughs> and more grateful. Yeah, exactly. And um, by the way, as a, a cardiologist, um, have you seen a difference between people that um, tend to be more positive, more grateful, and uh, people that... Uh, have a like more uh, pessimistic tendency actually there have been scientific studies that are fairly uh, valid that shows that people who have a positive outlook on life ha live longer and have fewer chronic illnesses certainly in cardiology we know that um, depression is a major risk factor for having a cardiac event if you look at married couples, people who've been married for a long time, the death of a spouse often brings on a depression. And in the year after the death of a spouse, the, the, the death rate for the surviving spouse is increased to a significant degree. And many of those deaths are due to heart disease. So absolutely, emotions play a large role in health. I used to tell my patients, you can't separate the head from the heart without fatal consequences. <laughs> the, the heart is richly endowed with nerves that travel from the brain to the heart. You, you know that yourself. You know that when you get frightened or anxious, your pulse goes up. You may not feel your blood pressure going up, but believe me, it does. And on the other hand, when you laugh, your blood pressure comes down, your beta endorphin levels rise, your pulse often uh, decreases. So laughter and gratitude and the positive emotions are helpful, not only to your heart, but to your uh, uh, endocrine system, um, to your bowels. There's no part of the body that isn't influenced by actions and thoughts that mitigate stress rather than amplify stress. Hmm. That that I think it's 
it's pure gold and i think we we should think about it more often and do something about it and I, what i love a lot about you is the fact that you actually integrate uh, humor and laughter even in being a serious person like thinking about serious things like uh, treating people and um, i don't know social justice and all kinds of things i love the fact that you you keep um, a light heart and yeah that's actually really interesting having a light heart you know <laughs> yes and i you know laughter is good for you and i you know when i was still in active clinical practice i had no compunctions about trying to make my patients laugh and i often did <laughs> I, i wanted them to leave their offices feeling happy and uplifted not feeling downcast and depressed this is wonderful and it's it's really powerful because we are not just like i i believe this and um as i can understand it you share this vision we are we don't only have uh, all kinds of illnesses but our emotions have uh, an influence on this and having a good positive attitude and um laughing and feeling good can actually help the body heal easier and uh i love the fact that you were able to do this for so many people in your career and yeah i guess if i've been very fortunate i've been very fortunate in that yeah. respect <laughs> yeah so if people weren't able to to thank you for this uh i'm going to be their voice and uh i'll thank you for for doing this for them and i think that um even though they might not have seen it at the time it it has had a, a great impact on them well thank you georgian and you're welcome and my patients are very welcome i was always humbled by the trust they put in me and i tried very hard to be worthy of that trust yeah that's wonderful that's wonderful so uh, we're nearing the end of our time together and i wanted to ask you where can our audience find your book or learn more about you the but the dr broad a mafia love story is available on amazon it it has come out in a kindle version hardcover and paperback it's also available in the uk and in australia and canada it's available in bookstores uh, barnes and noble or you can ask your local bookstore to order it it's uh, pretty much available over much of the english speaking world amazing amazing and i also know that you you have a website where people yes. can get in contact with you right that's correct it's thedoctorbroad.com awesome awesome good so Thank you very much for being here with us and for sharing your wisdom and uh, your beautiful perspective on life. Thank you, Jordan, for having me and thank you for listening to me. My pleasure. Do you want to stay up to date with the latest news but don't have the time? The Newsworthy is a great daily podcast that helps you stay up to date with everything you need to know in less than 10 minutes. Unlike many news sources out there that can leave you feeling depressed, the newsworthy is fast, fair, and fun. Search for the newsworthy wherever you listen to your podcast or go to the
newsworthy.com to check it out.